You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. What difference does it really make if a person believes in God? Of course, there are religious answers to this question, but on a practical, day-to-day basis, does it make any difference at all? I think the answer to this question is that it makes a great deal of difference, because belief in God is a foundational belief for nearly everything else. For the Christian, it allows us to explain the greatest questions of our existence. We look out at the universe that exists and we have to ask the foundational question. Why is there something instead of nothing? It seems like a fairly simple question and it probably is, but it's rather profound. Every philosophy and every religion has to answer the great question. Where did it all come from and why is it here? Now there are different approaches to the answer to this question. For some, the answer is simply chance. Why is there something rather than nothing? Just lucky, I guess. That's not fully intellectually satisfying. The Christian perspective is to what to the question of why there is something instead of nothing is because God chose to create it. Which leads, of course, to the great question, then who created God? But that's where Christianity and philosophies that exclude God meet a fundamental difference. Because for Christians, that's not a question that can even apply to God. God is the source of all things, writes Cyril of Alexandria, but he himself has no origin. Everything that exists came into being through him, but he was not born of anyone. He is the one who is and who is to come. In other words, God is the foundational explanation. Aristotle more or less reasoned his way to the same place, saying that at the back of all things there has to be some unmoved mover. And again, this is certainly distinct from the Christian perspective. As Gregory the Great says, God dwells in everything, beyond everything, above everything, and beneath everything. He is above everything in his power and beneath everything in his providence. He is beyond everything because of his greatness and inside everything because of his subtle nature. He rules from above, sustains from below, surrounds from outside, and penetrates inside. Nor can it be said that he has one part above and another below, another outside and another inside. Rather, it is one and the same God who sustains by ruling and rules by sustaining, who penetrates by surrounding and who surrounds by penetrating. The Bible expresses it in simple but comprehensive terms. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4 and verse 11, the creatures of heaven cry out to God, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and have their being. Now this isn't something that we can explain, so we have to take it by faith. That's why the creed begins, we believe. We believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth. Yet there is a certain sense of intellectual satisfaction. What Aristotle was after when he reasoned back to his eternal unmoved mover, we have satisfaction for in the active creator. Because God exists, we can explain why there is something instead of nothing. 
We can also answer the great personal questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? I was created by God. What is my purpose and why do I exist? And where am I going? All of these have their source in God. We were created by God and for His glory and we're created to share with Him in His eternal glory. This then begins to have a massive impact in how we think about the world. If the world simply exists because of luck, just because it does, then what does it matter how I treat the world? What does it matter how I treat the creatures in the world? What does it matter if I seek all that I can for myself and use and abuse everything else that exists? From where would come a moral framework that would prevent me? Certainly, very powerful and important and reasonable and logical structures have been built to show that it is for our better not to live that way. And they may be true. But again, it is a question of intellectual satisfaction. Why must I personally conform? We live in an era that fights against conformity in nearly every way. We don't want to be simple followers of the rules given to us by our society. Having a view of God changes things. If this is God's world, then there is a limit to how far we can use it. When you're a guest in someone's home, you treat it very differently than when you're in your own home. We're guests from that perspective in this world. But even more than that, God has given us responsibility in this world. According to scriptures, we were given a role to lead in this creation, to care for this world, to, to um, tend and keep its good garden, to subdue its land. That is, we are to protect and nourish and develop this world with purpose. And so abuse of the world and the creatures and our fellow human beings that are in it are immediately excluded. We have a higher calling. Luke Timothy Johnson comments that the statement God exists is a critical theological concept. And it suggests that the world we see and touch points to a power or powers beyond our own and outside of our control, beyond our sight and touch, which must be taken into account even if we are to give an adequate account of the world that we can touch and see. In other words, as he concludes, to affirm the existence of God means to affirm that the physical world which can be measured and calculated is not all that is. This changes our perspective on the future, on the past, on science, and on the nature of reality. Another of the great questions of philosophy. Now, I think we need to admit that there is a certain logical consistency in seeing the world in a purely mechanical and natural way. All things begin to exist by chance, continue to sustain by chance, and come together and organize by chance. Our thoughts, our bodies, our past, our present, and our future are all guided by the mechanistic rules that have flowed through chance. All is determined. But this is not a very satisfying or uplifting view of life. The idea that all I am, that all I was, 
and all that I ever shall be is simply a cosmic roll of the dice. And when it comes to an end, that's simply the end. I cease to have my role in this cosmic game. In contrast, when we believe in God in the Christian sense, in the Christian worldview, we see life as very, very different. We see it as having something more, something greater, something awe-inspiring, something amazing. We can look up into the stars and say, there is something greater for me. Again, I love Luke Timothy Johnson's words here. He says, we believe that there is a mystery at the heart of the world, a mystery that does not yield to direct examination and that refuses to be measured or manipulated and yet suggest its presence in every single thing that we can feel and taste and see and hear and smell in the world. This, C.S. Lewis says, is revealed in our concepts of natural justice. We make an agreement with someone, give me a piece of your orange and I'll give you a piece of mine. And I give a piece of my orange to you, but you don't give me your piece of orange. And I say, hey, that's unfair. Lewis was at one point an atheist who converted to Christianity. And he explains that as an atheist, his primary argument against God was that the universe seemed cruel and unjust. This is a very common and well-known objection. If we live in a universe that is cruel and unjust, then how could there be a God? Because he either created a cruel and unjust world and he's a bad God, or he's powerless to do anything about it, in which case he's not God because he's powerless. In other words, God is either evil and powerful or good and powerless, but not the God of the Christians. Now, Lewis would turn this argument completely on its head. But he had to ask an intellectually honest question. How had he gotten his idea of just and unjust? He says a man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? He asks. If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Then he has a great illustration. A man feels wet when he falls into water, because man is not a water animal. A fish would not feel wet. Of course, he says, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But then if I did that, my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found that I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sins. And consequently, atheism turned out to be just too simple. And so when Christians come to the creed, they begin by saying something quite profound. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is, visible and invisible. And in so doing, we are creating an entire way of looking at life, the world, and everything. And it's really quite different from looking at the world apart from God. Now, I've made the contrast generally between atheism as such and Christianity as such, but of course we all know there's a massive spectrum in the middle. And one of the things to remember is that many things that people who profess to be Christians believe are wrong, and many things that atheists profess to believe are right. 
Just as many things that atheists profess to believe are wrong and many things that Christians profess to believe are true, and both sides probably would acknowledge this. Our questions are not questions on this or that particular little thing, but rather on the whole way in which we look at every single thing that is. Now, in Christian terminology, to live in this world without God, or to put ourselves at the center of this world, or to put anything at the center of existence beyond God is called idolatry, the exalting of something above and beyond God. Luke Timothy Johnson, when discussing this, I think, has something very interesting to remind us of. When he says that the scriptures, having looked at a few particular passages, remind us of the awesome power of idolatry. It is found above all in its ability to shape the structures of society so that they suppress the possibility of perceiving the world in any way other than idolatrously. And this is something that affects everyone in our culture. Our culture is primarily a culture that rejects God, at least seeing him as if he is irrelevant and unimportant in the world that he created. And so even Christians are caught up in a practical atheism. We need to remember this when we say as Christians that we believe in God. This affects everything that we do. It is idolatry, Johnson says, when much of the world is constructed on the basis of economic and political systems that foster radical individualism, that make competition the supreme value in life, that reward greed, that enslave families to endless work without meaningful rest or spiritual growth, that camouflage such slavery by an endless round of entertainment diverting attention from the deadening boredom of a life dedicated exclusively to the acquisition of meaningless things. And that through its control of the media, progressively convinces all the enslaved that this pattern is natural and good and free. As Christians, we want to be freed from this slavery and to realize there is something more, something greater, something magical that we can aspire to be part of. We believe in God. listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. I referenced and highly recommend the series on ancient Christian doctrine put together by IVP, or InterVarsity Press, Academic, edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Odin. And I was quoting from the first volume, We Believe in One God. When I reference Luke Timothy Johnson, I'm referring to the Creed, what Christians Believe and Why It Matters, published by Doubleday. And the Nicene Creed is readily available online. Enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution.